What a beautiful reminder of the truth that when we're gathered here, dear friends, we're gathered to worship a Christ who is alive. He is currently enthroned in heaven. He's currently guiding and ruling his church through his spirit. And he's here with us this morning. Thank you, those who have uh, led us in music and in worshiping the Lord together through music. Um, friends, uh, it is our desire that we would continue to hear from the Lord Jesus Christ as he has revealed himself to us in his word. I invite you and encourage you to open uh, God's word this morning to the book of Acts chapter 21. Uh, we will be reading from verse 17 all the way to verse 36. If you did not bring your Bible this morning, we encourage you to find a Bible provided in a chair in front of you. You may find this passage on page number 930. We also encourage you, if you do not have a Bible, we would love to, uh, to give one to you and feel free to use the Bible uh, that you have in front of you in the pew and take it home and, and enjoy it. Let's read God's Word together as we continue our sermon series through the book of Acts, chapter 21, verse 17. Here is the Word of the Lord for us this morning. When we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. After greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they had heard it, they glorified God. And they said to him, You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. They are all zealous for the law. And they have been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. Do therefore what we will tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. These, take these men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. Thus all will know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance of the law. But as for the Gentiles who have believed, we have sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. Then Paul took the men, and the next day he purified himself along with them and went into the temple, giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled and the offering presented for each one of them. When the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia... Seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who is teaching everyone, everywhere, against the people and the law and this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus and Ephesian with him in the city. And they supposed that Paul had brought him um, into the temple. Then all the city stirred up, and the people ran together. They sized Paul and dragged him out of the temple. And at once the gates were shut. And as they were seeking to kill him, 
word came to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. He at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Then the tribune came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. He inquired who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd were shouting one thing, some another. And as he could not learn the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. And when he came to the steps, he was actually carried by two soldiers because of the violence of the crowd. For the mob of the people followed, crying out, Away with him. This is the word of the Lord for our hearts this morning. Would you pray with me? Lord, thank you for your word, which you revealed to us. And we now ask that you would speak to our hearts through the power and the presence of your Holy Spirit that is among us this morning. Hover over us, hover over our minds and hearts. Let us submit ourselves to you and your word. Give me your words so that your people might be fed through your truth. We pray in the name of Christ. Amen. Friends, the uh, section we, are, we read today and we have begun looking at actually as of last week um, is of great, great significance for Luke. Now, let me tell you very, um, uh, very, very honestly, if we were not committed to preach expositionally through longer sections of the Bible, I would have never, ever picked this passage. Ever. Because um, you're wondering what exactly is inspiring for us from this passage. I mean, we know that the Word of God is inspired by God in its totality. But sometimes we wonder if all of it is equally inspiring for us. You know what I mean? And this passage is, is one of those weird texts. What are we supposed to learn from the fact that Paul was encouraged to pay the, the way for four men to shave their heads and take this Jewish route to show that he still submits the Jewish law and customs? What's, what's, what's the point of that for us today? Apparently, this passage and the next few chapters are incredibly important for Luke. Now, to give you a hint and try to understand why this is important, um, let, me, let me give you this hint. All the book of Acts covers, from chapter 1 to chapter 28, covers about 30 years of history. 30 years summarized in 28 chapters. It's a lot of time to cover in just 28 chapters. Well, when we get to chapter 21, all the way to chapter 24, three chapters cover 12 days of Paul's life. How do I know that? Look to chapter 24. Move, move over to your Bibles. Just a few pages. Chapter 24 of Acts, verse 11. Paul tells the governor... The following words. 
you can verify, Acts 24, 11, you can verify that it is not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem. And what is this referring to? Back to chapter 21, verse 17, when we had come to Jerusalem, this is where it's referring to. See, three chapters of the book of Acts covering, I mean, the book of Acts covering 30 years, and now three chapters is covering just 12 days? That should be a hint how important this, this section is for Luke. He gives so much attention to it. It's as if he's pressing the slow motion button as he's writing about Paul's final visit to Jerusalem. Why? Why is this important? Well, Luke wants to tell us how the Jews in Jerusalem have opposed Paul. They have attacked him. They captured him. They sought to kill him. And they would have had it not been for the Roman government to intervene and protect Paul's life. And the accusations that started all this was that Paul had abandoned his Jewish heritage and has opposed the law of Moses and has opposed the temple. Look at verse 27. Look at verse 27. When the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law and this place. And in verse 30, we read that the whole city was stirred up and the people ran together. They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple, and at once the gates were shut. I want you to picture this in your minds. I want you to, to understand the, the symbolic force of this act of shutting the doors of the temple after they have dragged Paul out by force. They didn't just drag Paul out by force. They actually shut the doors of the temple so he could never get in. I mean, can you imagine the, the, just the, the, the ferocious opposition? This act is, is so different. Their act of shutting the doors of the temple so that Paul could never come in again is so different than what happened with the curtain of the Holy of the Holies when Jesus was dying on the cross. You remember that detail? When Jesus died on the cross, we are told that the curtain which was protecting the entrance into the most holy of holies was torn from top to bottom symbolizing that through the death of Jesus on the cross, God was opening the access to Himself, to His holiness, through the sacrifice of Christ. But now these Jews, they're shutting the door of the temple to prohibit the messenger of the gospel to enter their place of worship again. What a contrast. What a forceful, symbolic act of rejection and opposition. And of course, it wasn't just a prohibition of entering the temple. The Jewish mob was seeking to kill Paul. That's why when the Roman soldiers came to rescue him from the Jewish hands, the mob cried, away with him! 
And by the way, that phrase is very similar to the same, the same phrase the Jews used when they asked the Romans to take Jesus away and crucify him. This was the same cry. How, how strong, how strong the, the Jewish opposition was against Paul and against the gospel that he came to proclaim. Well, against this background, we, came, we come to read how the church in Jerusalem received Paul. Would the church in Jerusalem receive him any differently? They who are Jews, who have come to believe in Christ, would they receive Paul any differently? Now, Paul had some concerns about this final visit to Jerusalem, and we know about that in several places. One of the places is in the book of Romans, which, uh, which he wrote earlier on this journey as he was moving towards Jerusalem. Um, in Romans 15, 30, a passage that was read earlier in our service this morning, Paul said, he, he appeals to the church in Jerusalem. He says, I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf. Paul is asking for prayer. Why? For what purpose? What's, what specifically for? And he says, that I may deliver, may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea, and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints. There was some trepidation in Paul's own heart. Will the church in Jerusalem receive him? He gets it that the, the unbelievers in Judea want to, want to threaten his life. But what about the church in Jerusalem? How will they receive Paul? Well, this passage gives us some of the concerns about, about the Jerusalem church itself. They had concerns about Paul. It seems that they too have been affected by the rumors they have heard about Paul. Yet, praise be to God for the elders in the church of Jerusalem who had the divine wisdom of dealing with these tensions and sought to protect Paul from the misinformed and unfounded rumors against him. Let's look at how the elders of the church in Jerusalem and how Paul together are able to navigate through these difficult waters that have entered the boat of the Jerusalem church. They cannot help with the unbelieving Jews. They can't help with that. But they're trying to help with what's going on with the Jerusalem church and how they will react to Paul. Let's look at, at three qualities that we see in these church leaders, in these elders, in the midst of the Jewish opposition. First of all, they're ready to rejoice in God's work elsewhere. They're ready to rejoice in God's work elsewhere. Paul sought to meet with the uh, leaders of the church in Jerusalem right away. Look at verse 18. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and uh, all the elders were present. This was the leadership of the church in Jerusalem. James was the primary figure, but he wasn't the only pastor. The church in Jerusalem had a plurality of pastors or elders who shepherded together the congregation. And these elders were all present when Paul came to meet with the church leadership. It's interesting that Paul is meeting here only with the elders, not with the whole congregation, as he used to do in the past in his previous journeys. There is great wisdom in this church, in this choice at this point, because of the tension that existed in the congregation, 
about Paul's reputation, the elders meet together with Paul to discuss the matters with him first. In verse 19, we read that after greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. Now notice the emphasis of this report. Notice exactly what they're talking about. They're talking about what God has done through their ministry. Now, while we are called to do God's work, while we're called to do His ministry, friends, at the end of the day, we must remember it is God who does it, not us. Yes, He involves us. He engages us. It is, it is our ministry, but it is God who does the work. It is God who makes it happen. Yes, we toil, but God does it. Once again, the missionary report is about what God has done, not about us. I love what uh, Eckhart Schnabel, one of the commentators, says about this. He says, because missionary work is God's work, the question is not so much how we do church, but whether we allow God to do His work or whether we think that the key to success in missionary work is, and, and church growth lies within human analysis or social scientific exploration or business management methods or the use of modern media. It's not about us and how we do the work. It's about whether or not God is doing the work. That's what we should seek. In, praying, in, in preparing for this, for this sermon this week, I've been praying and asking God that He would increase His work among us. That God would do great things in, through us and in us, not so that we can boast about us and look at Park Hills, look at what, what we're doing at Park Hills, what God is doing among us. What God, that God would glorify Himself by bringing sinners, by bringing the lost, by bringing those who are rebellious in their sins, those who are lonely in their sins, that He would bring them to Himself. Friends, I encourage you, pray. Pray that God would pour out His Spirit in fresh ways upon us. Pray that we would boldly proclaim His gospel wherever we are, that we would have an increasing burden for those who are without Christ, that we would seek to minister to them. But after doing all that, that we would rely and plead with God to work through our efforts. That it's not about what we do. It's about the work of God doing it. The power of God through His Spirit and through His Word. After Paul related to them one by one the things that God had done among them, among the Gentiles, the reaction of these elders is described in verse 20. Look at verse 20. And when they heard it, they glorified God. They didn't think how great Paul was. That's not, that's, not, that's not the reaction. Oh, my goodness, look at these great missionary guys. Oh, we, we so need you guys. Come on, do the same thing here. Let's repeat history. No, it's not about them. It's about glorifying God. Sometimes we, we so put God's ministers on such a pedestal as if they are the key to success in God's work. No, no. We actually idolize church leaders when we do that. It's about God glorifying Him. They, and, and they rejoiced. Now, this might seem a normal reaction. When you hear God working in amazing ways, it's normal 
to rejoice, right? But friends, it's not always easy to rejoice in what God does elsewhere. It's easy to rejoice when God works in amazing ways here. When we are the center of God's work. It's easy to rejoice then. Is it easy to rejoice when we are not at the center of God's work where some other church, where some other place is at the center of God's amazing work? How often, friends, you know, you hear reports, you hear things, and, and we, our hearts want to rejoice. And then there's a spirit of disappointment or envy. And it says, why is that happening just there? Why is it happening just there and not here? Right? How often a spirit of disappointment or envy comes in and, and actually takes away the joy. And it's harder for us to rejoice in God's work elsewhere. Because we're so selfish. We want to rejoice in God's work here. And, and some, of that, some of that might be holy zeal. I'm not saying that all of that is bad. Don't get me wrong. I, I, I would love for, for God to work greatly in our own midst just as he's working some other places that we read about in the news or in the stories or in the, in the, you know, in the great history books of revival. And yet, friends... We must have the humility to be able to rejoice even in God's work elsewhere. I love the humility of these elders. They're able to rejoice in God's work elsewhere. You know, I wonder, what did Paul tell them? It says, Luke tells us that he told them one by one. No, I, I, I'm, I suspect, I don't know for sure, but I'm, I'm pretty sure he probably told them about Eutychus and how how Paul raised him from the dead. I mean, what an amazing story. Perhaps some of them said they're, they're not surprised that it happened just once. They're surprised it didn't happen more than once, given that Paul used to preach very long, you know. Um, but I wonder if, if Paul told him about his speech in Athens. I wonder if he told him about his, his experiences in Corinth or his experiences in Ephesus where the, the entire community of magicians and sorcerers have have put their books together and, and, and burned them, and there's such an impact in the city. I wonder if, if he told them about the miraculous ways God used Paul to bring the gospel to the Gentiles. And I wonder if the Jerusalem saints are like, oh, we wish God would do the same thing here. Right? So easy for, for a spirit of disappointment, discouragement, envy to come, and we cannot rejoice that easily in what God does elsewhere. But they do. They do. And you know, the second reason why this is such a big issue that they are able to rejoice, it's not that it's, they rejoice in God's work elsewhere, but that elsewhere is not other Jews. That elsewhere is Gentiles. Wow. For, 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 Jews, for Jews to be able to, to rejoice in God's amazing work among the Gentiles, friends, at that time, this was a big deal. 
It speaks to us that the church leadership in Jerusalem has come to embrace, indeed, the grace of God, that he was no longer calling just one nation, just a Jewish people, but people from every nation and every race were being brought to the knowledge of the Lord Jesus, and God was working powerfully among them. These Jewish leaders rejoiced in God's grace extended to the non-Jews. Oh, friends, how different is the reaction of these Jewish Christian elders from the unbelievers, unbelieving Jews in, in Jerusalem? And how different is their reaction from the rest of the members of their congregation who actually joined in in the rumors, who actually had issues with Paul? These leaders are able to show the way how to embrace God's work and how to embrace a, this messenger of the gospel, the Apostle Paul. What a great sign of God's grace among these elders of the church in Jerusalem. They could have turned their backs on Paul. They could have been suspicious themselves, just like the, the rest of the church was. But they rejoiced in God's grace given to the Gentiles. Friends, let me ask you this morning, can you rejoice in God's work elsewhere? Can you rejoice in God's work elsewhere? Because if we cannot, our hearts may not be right with the Lord. Second point, these uh, elders are not only able to rejoice in what God does elsewhere among the Gentiles, they also take the initiative to protect Paul from the rumors that have festered against him. They, we see in them a second readiness. Readiness not only to rejoice, readiness to, or ready to confront rumors. Ready to confront rumors. While the elders had uh, encouraging news to give to Paul about the thousands of Jews that have come to believe, that was an encouraging number. That was a great thing as well. Praise God for, for the thousands of Jews that had come to believe. But there's a dark side to that great number. There's a dark side. There's, there's a dark shadow hovering over these great numbers of Jewish believers. They had a zeal for the law. So tension arose even among the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem concerning the rumors against Paul. Why? Because they were misinformed. They were uninformed or wrongly informed about what truly Paul was doing. So that it's not just the Jewish unbelievers who resented Paul, but Jewish Christians as well. And friends, this is not something to be proud of. And these Jewish leaders, the elders of the, of the church in Jerusalem, were, were not very happy about this. And they were seeking to, take a, to, to initiate something, to, to, to overcome this tension. There is nothing godly in being convinced by rumors. Because I don't know if you realize, but there's nothing godly in being convinced by rumors. And yet, how often we love to cling to rumors. How often we love to spread rumors. We prefer rumors for the truth. We prefer rumors for the sake of rather going straight to the person and finding out what's going on and finding the facts. That's a fruit of our sinfulness. And apparently the church in Jerusalem was struggling with some of this at this point. The next few verses show us the importance of identifying existing tensions in the church and dealing with them. Dealing respectfully, dealing well with them, uh, dealing with them openly, seeking to clarify false perceptions from rumors. Now, these church leaders have the maturity to identify these tensions and to address it. They seek to protect Paul from the false impressions that have built around him. Look at verse 20. And they said to him, You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. 
They're all zealous for the law. They have been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses. Now, what exactly did that mean? Well, verse 21 says that Paul was telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. This was a rumor that was heard uh, in, among the Jewish Christians and in Jerusalem. Now, was this rumor true? No. It, is, it was not true. Nowhere in the New Testament do we read that Paul taught the Jews not to circumcise or to give up the Jewish customs and become like the Gentiles. Now, it is true that Paul preached against circumcision as a requirement for Gentiles to be saved. That is very true. Also, Paul spoke against the Jews who wanted to pull the yoke of circumcision upon the Gentiles or upon the Jews who still made circumcision a matter of salvation. But Paul did not prohibit Jewish Christians from circumcision. If anything, Paul, when he and Timothy went into a, Gentile, uh, into a Jewish territory, Paul actually asked Timothy to get circumcised. Acts 16, 3. So where did the misunderstanding come from? Paul did teach that when it comes to the issues of salvation, of how we are made right with God, circumcision has no value, even for Jews. That is true. Paul preached that pretty clearly. Yes, for all of us, and even for Jews, the righteousness that we are in need of toward God, the rightness we need toward God is not something that we accomplish on our own. Not through circumcision, not through obeying the, 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 the works of the law. It is, it is actually only by believing in the righteousness which God himself provided for us through Christ. That's the only way we can be declared right with God through the righteousness of Christ. That's why Paul in Romans 3, let me read to you a few verses in, in Romans 3. Paul wrote to them, he says, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. And then in, in verse 28 to 31 in, in chapter 3 of Romans, Paul continues on and says, For we hold that one is justified by faith, apart from the works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Now, you see, you can see how a Jew, hearing this, these words, they, they can, they, the conclusion they can draw from it is that Paul is diminishing circumcision. He's diminishing the law. He's, he's actually abandoning the law, even though he was not. On the contrary, he says in verse 31 of Romans 3, do we then overthrow the law by this faith? Paul says, by no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. To the Corinthians, Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 7, for neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. Galatians 6.15, for neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. You can see how from this, these texts, um, so a Jew could, really, could easily follow 
the, the logic of the rumors and buy into the rumors. We could see how that would be true. But when it came to matters of salvation, oh, friends, Paul makes it very clear that the only way to be made right with God is through the righteousness we have received apart from the law, apart from anything we do. It is through how God has made it available for us in Jesus. And therefore, the only way for us to get a hold of that is by entrusting in Christ, by believing in Christ, by turning away from our own ways, by turning away from our own even religious efforts to win and approve God's favor for our salvation and embrace Christ and the righteousness that is given to us apart from the law. Oh, friends, this is, this is the core of the gospel message. If you've never understood the gospel, I want you to understand that there's two ways to run away from God. Two broad ways. One of them is to just do a lot of bad things and act in your way rebelliously against God's ways. But there's a second way you can run away from God. That's by trying to earn your salvation by your good works, by your religiosity. Because God made it very clear that our status of being made right with God is not by that which we do. It is by that which He provided for us in the Lord Jesus Christ through His sacrifice on, on the cross, through His resurrection. And it is by entrusting in that that we turn away from sin. We turn away from our own ways, even our own religious ways. And we actually embrace Christ and His commands and His provisions for us. Friends, if, if you've never responded or understood this, this gospel, I would love to talk to you at the end of the service. Come and talk to me. I want to make sure you understand that it's not human effort that gets us right with God. It is by faith alone. And once that faith comes, once we embrace Christ by faith, then the works follow. Then there's a new obedience that follows right behind it. And it's a kind of obedience that, is, that comes out of this new faith and righteousness in God. I love what Paul wrote in Romans 1, 5. He says, he says about his apostleship that he received his apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among the nations. It's not that obedience has no place. It's that obedience is the fruit of that faith which obtains Christ alone, by faith alone. So friends, I pray that if, if you're still confused about these categories, I'd love to talk to you at the end of the service. Come and talk to me. Paul was a champion to clarify the gospel, the grace of God, both to Gentiles, but also to Jews who tended to boast in their own accomplishments and their religious commitments as grounds for being considered right with God. That's why so many Jewish Christians may have misunderstood the Apostle Paul. Friends, let me ask you, if you, have been, if you had been a Christian, a Jewish Christian in Jerusalem at that time, would you have believed the rumors? Would you have bought into them? Would you have spread them? How often we are prone to spread rumors because either we don't understand a situation or we misrepresent the situation or we misinterpret the situation. I, I love how one, one, uh, one commentator said, Satan knows that nothing is more fit to lay waste the kingdom of Christ than discord and disagreement among the faithful. 
So he sees it's not to spread abroad false speeches which may cause one to suspect another. Therefore, we must shut out our ears against false reports. That's, what we can, what, that's one thing we can learn from, from this bad experience in the church in Jerusalem. Shut, your, shut the ears against false reports or misinformed reports. Let's make sure that we don't contribute to the spreading of the rumors, but that we're ready to fight and, and to confront the rumors in God's wisdom and clarity. That, a third readiness that we see in this passage, a readiness not just to rejoice in God's work elsewhere, a readiness not just to confront rumors, readiness to fight for gospel fellowship, readiness to fight for gospel fellowship. It's amazing that Paul is uh, willing to go through this purification rite that was suggested by the Jewish Christian leaders. He paid the price for these four men who were already going through a, most likely a Nazarite vow. Um, he pays for them, and uh, he joins them. He associates with them in this uh, purification, and, um, um, and he moves on. Now, this act that Paul was willing to go through this rite of purification is a matter of notorious debate among the scholars. Um, there are three major strands how people take this act of Paul here. Well, some of them say um, that this could not be Paul's true choice. That the, the Paul we read in the rest of the New Testament is not this Paul. Therefore, this is not a true story. This could not be Paul. This is just a fabrication. Others would say that, um, well, Paul did it, but he, he sort of did it grudgingly. You know, he's like, okay, if I have to do this again, I mean, really? You're asking me to do this? Really? Okay, I guess I'll do it, but, you know, one last time. All these are, are you know, uh, people make up these things, right? They, they, they think how, what, what was going on in Paul's heart. But that's the second, that's second, second explanation that people give. Okay, Paul did it, but he did it grudgingly. Um, and then there's a third uh, group of commentators who actually think, no, Paul actually did it willingly. He did it. He submitted willingly and gladly. And how could he? How, how could he? Now, it's very difficult for us to really know what was going on in Paul's heart as he did this act of submitting himself to this act of, of purification. Yet, I think there's some indications why... I personally, this is just my pure impression, I think Paul did it gladly. Um, first, the willingness to go through this cleansing ritual was not opposed to the gospel message. Uh, there's nothing uh, in, in the gospel that, um, that opposed this ritual. Now, it's true that on one side, the gospel cleanses us from all sin through the blood of Christ. That's the only way we're being cleansed by the blood of, of the Lord Jesus. So why do we need this cleansing ritual? Well, Paul himself spoke about sinners needing to practice ongoing spiritual cleansing. Uh, in 2 Corinthians 7, Paul says, Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. So even though we are cleansed by the blood of Christ, there is still a sense in which we as believers should continue to watch and cleanse ourselves of every defilement in, in body and, and spirit. And here Paul is free to express his renewed commitment to God through the symbolic act of Jewish cleansing ritual. There's nothing in it that threatened the gospel. Second of all, I think Paul was, was doing it gladly because he was interested to maintain the unity 
between Jews and Gentiles. Even though he was commissioned to be the preacher to the Gentiles, he did not give up his Jewish roots. And he did not want to be perceived as having abandoned his Jewishness. Later in Acts, when Paul starts giving a defense of his, of his ministry, he will refer to Jesus in a very unique phrase. He will refer to Jesus as the hope of Israel. A beautiful phrase. Paul did not want the Jews to understand that somehow turning to Christ makes them turn away from, from the true identity of Israel, of what, what the people of God in, were supposed to be in the Old Testament, of the promises of the Old Testament, how the Old Testament were pointing forward to Jesus, not against the Old Testament. So he wanted to be sure that the message of the gospel does not make a Jewish person less Jewish. No. Jesus himself thought that the Old Testament was pointing forward to Christ, that Jesus was God's anointed king and God's anointed Messiah, and through him all the hopes of Israel were fulfilled so that Paul is ready to fight and maintain the gospel fellowship. He did not want a separation to happen between Jews and Gentiles. There are not going to be two different Christianities here. There's going to be only one Christianity of Jews and Gentiles together in one. That's why Paul is committed to go through this right willingly to make sure people don't misunderstand this separation between two kinds of Christianity. Thirdly, if we look at the rest of the story of Acts, we realize that Paul's willingness to go through the Jewish cleansing ritual is actually proof against the accusations of the Jews that Paul has defiled the temple. Oh no, he was actually clean. He had just completed his cleansing ritual. So when Jews bring out the accusation that he's defiling the temple, they, they had absolutely no, no inch of evidence. There is no truth in their accusation. This willingness to, of Paul to submit to the Jewish customs actually made him more ready to enter the temple than ever. And yet the Jews missed it. Why? Because all of that attack, the accusations, the, the, the attempt to kill him, was really a, a, an issue of the opposition that the Jewish leaders had against the gospel at that time. They were so severe in that that they shut the door of the temple. They did not want that gospel message to be preached again in that temple. And we don't know if it it ever has been afterwards. Friends, their eviction of Paul from their temple, the shutting of the doors, had no legitimate reason. Not even for a Jew. It was based on lies, It was based on misinterpretations. It was based on false reports. Luke wants to tell us that. It's amazing to see how much Jewish opposition has mounted against the proclaimer of the gospel who preached the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul's greatest threats, and and Luke wants to emphasize this, Paul's greatest threats at the end of his ministry, or throughout his ministry, but especially at the end of the book of Acts, came not from the Gentiles, came from the Jews. The very ones who had the promises, the very ones who had the Old Testament, it is they who turned their hearts against the gospel, the fulfillment of those promises. You know what that tells me, friends? You know what lesson we can learn from it? This is how corrupt the human heart is. You can have the revelation of God. You can have the promises of God and still turn your face against it, your back against it. Shut the door behind it. 
Because at the end of the day, we do not accept God's revelations based on human power or human ability. God must give us new hearts. Let's pray. Father, thank you that it is you and you alone who are able to change hearts. Even for those who have had your truth, even for those who have been exposed to your teachings from a young age, it is you and you alone who are able to turn the hearts of rebellious sinners like us and enable us to see the glory of Christ, the glory of the gospel, and the fulfillment of all those promises of the Old Testament. Oh Lord, we pray, would you, would you enable us to continue to see this light of the gospel? Would you call others to see that? Would you open their eyes to see it? Even those who have been exposed to your truth from a young age, would you open the eyes of the blind? Father, give to us a readiness to rejoice in your work, even when that work is elsewhere. Give us a readiness to confront rumors. Give us a readiness to fight for the gospel fellowship. May that fellowship of the gospel be evident among us. So when people see our love for one another, the way we're able and willing to deal with each other in truth and love, may they see the hope of the gospel in us. Oh, Lord, we pray that you would be magnified through us in the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.